I, I grew up in Boston, right? And right. and maybe we should record this, but I grew up in Boston, and it was so cold. I used to ask my mother, like, why would anybody live in the cold when they can move? Yeah. It just makes no sense to me. I don't know. They work harder. They work harder in cold countries. That's my theory. Yep. I think that's why a lot of really interesting things are invented where it's cold as opposed to where it's hot. But well, that's a well, look at Scotland. Scotland as a a legacy for inventions. You know, it's cold and it's miserable. Apologies to any Scottish listeners. I can say <laughs> I can say that with authority because my I'm half Scottish, so I'm not going to comment. Yeah, they produced bankers, economists, industrial engineers, all because it was cold. <laughs> <laughs> exactly it's like do you want to go outside not really what can exactly. we do in here exactly I don't know let's make let's something build stuff <laughs> yeah so what's going on Michael oh not much not much we're um to, we're gonna talk about talk, this what do you want to talk about tonight let's talk about I mean well I think we've got to be topical we've got to talk about this new era new era I, think I mean, have to. I think Donald have Trump to. is in the White House I'm not gonna embark on Donald Trump bashing but I no, just want to not at all kind of interested to see your opinions because I just noticed, I mean, there was something a few days back, Jack Ma was at Davos and Jack yep. Ma's the, the billionaire founder of Alibaba. Yes. And he's, he's, he's quite a global guy, really. I mean, he started out as an English teacher, I believe, in his yes, career. Did. And, you know, he speaks really good English and he's quite global as a as a, an entrepreneur and business owner compared to, you know, some of his compatriots. But he, um, you know, he was saying that, you know, the US has, you know, the year of the U. I don't think he went as far as to say the year of the U. Era of the U.S. is over, but he was saying that the U.S. has wasted fourteen trillion dollars on, you know, this, that, and the other over the last few decades, and you know that's just sort of left a hole for people like, uh, you know, well, I suppose for the Chinese to step into. I'm just sort of curious, you know, what with the recent executive orders coming out of the White House, whether we're seeing a shift now. Is it just a blip, or do you think we're seeing a fundamental shift? Are we starting to see, you know? End of an era? Is this Asia's era coming in? What, what do you think? I mean, you, you sort of, you're American, obviously, but you sit in the Asian perch. How do you see it, Michael? I think that <clears throat> there have been so many comparisons that even during my lifetime between the United States and the Roman Empire that it's going to crumble from within that all great societies do and, and you know, a whole bunch of noise like that. And I, I, I don't think it's necessarily not true, but I think... You know, who was, it, who was it that said, like, the rumors of my demise have been greatly exaggerated? Mark Twain. Exactly. Mark Twain. I think I quoted Mark Twain last time and didn't know either. Right. <laughs> exactly. He gets a quote every week. He does get a quote. We should change the name of this to the Mark Twain podcast. Right, right. Um, but I think, I think the demise of the United States has been um, predicted way too many times and, yeah. and, and way too frequently. But I will say this. It's always been different. And... You know, there are, there's an election cycle in the United States. There are four years for the president, six years for senators, and, and, and that really matters. And yet, this time around, it really feels different. And What's the that? reason why is because Reagan can stand on stage and say, I paid for that microphone, essentially saying, you're an idiot. Um, you know, Bush can stand up there and say, no new taxes. They can argue with all these people. You know, Obama said that Hillary was an idiot and then made her secretary of state. What happens normally in US politics is that the winners stop campaigning after they win and say, 
well, that was fun. Let's get back to actually governing and, and having real policies in the United States. And most of those policies ends up being, end up being quite centric. Hmm. Um, that's not necessarily good, but that's what's essentially happened for the past 100 and something years. And yet now what's happening <clears throat> is the president is continuing to campaign and continuing to be really thin-skinned when it comes to people saying, I mean, imagine if Obama tweeted every single time Trump or some other person said that he wasn't actually really born in Hawaii, he was born in Kenya. Right. And he wouldn't have been able to sleep. And yet he just kind of soldiered on and tried to get things done. And I think if you look at the history of the United States, you know, pick your favorite president, Kennedy, Roosevelt, mm. I don't care, Washington. None of these people were perfect. Mm. But what they did try to do was they tried to keep the country unified. And they were not satisfied being on the fringes. And I mm. think that Trump, here's the problem with Trump. Donald Trump was the kid, <clears throat> was probably the kid in high school who had no friends. <laughs> uh, and the only reason why he had friends was because his daddy had money. Right. right. So he would drive a really fancy car to school and say, hey, any of you guys want to ride in my Camaro kind right. of thing? Not that a Camaro is a nice car, by the way. Yeah. But he, but he probably thought it was because he has no culture and no class. Um, but what I, think is gonna, what I think is really scary is that I don't think they care what they do. And they're so self-interested and so self-centered that there is a fear that what they are doing is really destabilizing. Hmm. Um, you can't have a guy like Rex Tillerson necessarily being the Secretary of State. And the, if you want to make a comparison, here's where it gets really scary for me. Right, a guy like Donald Trump can, and I know plenty of people like him. I mean, he, this guy is not like an outlier in any way, shape, or form to a whole bunch of people in his situation. He's always operated in the shadows. So he could always say things like, oh, I'll just grab this and grab that. And nobody would really say anything to him. So he operates in a vacuum. And as it turns out, Rex Tillerson, who's been working at um, Exxon in some way, shape, or form since 1975, it's like 40-something years, mm. which has almost always been the most powerful oil company in the world, they always operate as if there are no rules for them. You can't do that when you're running the most powerful country in the world. Mm. And I always like to say this, right? Like I was born in the U.S. It was a historical mistake, really. I could have just as likely been born in the Ukraine. But I was born in the United States, so I have the benefit, I guess, of being a U.S. citizen. But none of the greatness of America is attributed to me. So I say it as a fact and not as a brag, right? Mm. But these guys, these guys scare me. Because they've never been accountable to anybody or anything. And they've been essentially like, not Tillerson so much, but, but Trump essentially has been lying his whole life. Just completely. So you don't know what's going to happen. And mm -hmm. here's the thing. You know, we used to say when we were trading, right, <clears throat> um, you know, instability in markets is created by like unknown, the unknown. And you just don't know what this guy is going to do because he's not operating by any existing script. And that's bad for everybody. So right. when the president of Japan um, and the president of China have the same concerns, I think it, you really need to get nervous. Hmm. And I'm not prone to, you know, fear mongering at any level. But these th these guys make me nervous because they just don't care. Yeah. 
you said earlier about uh, stability, and I wonder, I mean, we live in um, Asia, and obviously you're in Thailand, I'm in Japan, and we're very conscious of a changing economic landscape. And with that, obviously, is a changing political landscape. So Correct. for, well, since the end of the Second World War and from the Korean War onwards, the US has been the major stabilizing force in Asia, right? Yes, it has. And, you know, I mean, I lived in time in Okinawa. You only have to see, probably Americans aren't aware, the presence of the American you know, no. military in Japan is significant, right? Even in Korea as well. So you have to appreciate the fact that they've stabilized it, whether or not it's a good thing for the people there, but ultimately they've stabilized it and they've prevented a lot of friction there for the last 50, 60 years. Correct. So what happens now, and, you know, this sort of unknown that you talk about, I'm just curious because there's a lot of, there's a lot of maneuvering going on at the same time. I and mean, China is obviously waiting its time. It doesn't want to play its cards. It doesn't want to step up too early. I mean, there's been a lot of talk about, for example, China floating its, you know, making its currency a lot more liquid on the international markets. It's been right. issuing, um, you know, renminbi bonds, these kind of things. And then you've got this sort of this China southeast asia economic pact partnership which is emerging as well so there's a lot of stuff going on i mean maybe a positive thing but we just don't know so i mean what are your thoughts i mean the next sort of decade is going to be really interesting isn't it it's going to be i don't know i mean i don't see if you're if you're right and you're saying china and japan are both having concerns about the u.s you know that leaves a gap for somebody to step forward and provide some leadership in the region right right but this is the key question is does does anybody really want China to step in and fill that gap? And I want to back up for a second and comment about Jack Ma for a moment. I think it's rich, actually, that Jack Ma feels free to comment on geopolitics. I, I, I don't understand, in a way, when... You know, I don't know, pick anybody, Jeff Bezos, <clears throat> anybody who's been financially successful feels like they have some innate understanding of how to solve all problems. Um, hmm. Exhibit number one, Peter Thiel. Right. You can go wherever you want. So Peter Thiel famously quoted as saying, I wouldn't take Donald Trump literally. So when he says things like, we're not going to, you know, I'm, I'm going to ban all Muslims from entering the United States. What he really means is we're going to have a more rational immigration policy. I think what we've learned actually is what he really means is what we're going really yeah. to ban all Muslims from coming into the United States. You can make a case as to whether that's a good policy or not a good policy, but what you can't make the case is that Peter Thiel has any idea what he's talking about when it comes to geopolitics. Right. And the fact that Jack Ma has succeeded by building Alibaba in a country that is completely protected and refuses to allow foreign competitors like Amazon and Google and other companies like that to compete on an even playing field in his country, it's hard to imagine why he feels like he has the right to comment on geopolitics. I mean, mm -hmm. congratulations for him becoming for becoming, you know, a billionaire and an internet billionaire and doing a really good job and working really hard and understanding how that works. But what's his next success? Like, show me something else he's succeeded at. Mm. Right. I mean, even Richard Branson, right, has only had two real big successes, right, and really only one gigantic one, and that's the Virgin brand. Mm. But the guy's done nothing else, and it's rare, actually, that you hear Richard Branson commenting on geopolitics because it's so far outside of his 
sphere of knowledge that he'd much rather comment on entrepreneurialism, which is what he knows about really well. Mm-hmm. I don't know. You know, like <clears throat> you don't hear really successful, you know, building builders talking about how to build an internet company because they just don't know. It's the same thing. Anyway, so someone coming in to fill the gap. I don't think the world and the region necessarily wants China to come in and mm-hmm. fill the gap because there's a history, even in their own country, of really violent colonialism. Um, and, you know, say what you will about the fact, and, and I've had this discussion with many people about, you know, the Chinese government has actually done a really good job of modernizing that country over the past 50 years. And frankly, with such a diverse landscape and a diverse population, um, actually getting electricity everywhere was non-trivial. And the fact that they didn't do it in the midst of a democracy probably made more sense. Um, right. By doing because it would have been so hard to get that done just because of all the um, <clears throat> the infighting, but ask the um, the Uyghur people if they're really happy that the Chinese mm. are there, and also ask the Tibetans in particular, ask the Dalai Lama if he's happy that the Chinese just came into Tibet. So, you know, that's not the same regime necessarily that's there, but I don't think the region's necessarily happy that the United States won't be there. Um, and I don't think that China is necessarily the right place to fill that gap. Hmm. Um, but what it does do is it creates, <clears throat> again, a bipolar world. In the old days, it was the Soviet Union and the United States, and now it's going to be China and the U.S. Mm-hmm. It's um, lining up, isn't it? It sure is. But, but again, from a currency perspective, you talked about a little bit on the, on the financial side. From the currency perspective, whether the Chinese let the, the yuan float or not, um, it's not irrelevant, but they have their own sort of fiscal and financial systemic problems as well. Hmm. Right? If you look at the balance sheets and the of the Chinese banks, they're in really, really bad shape. Right, and the the kind of the Japanese used to say this back in the '90s. <clears throat> what would you do if we sold all our treasury bonds? Hmm. Well, it wouldn't be good, but where else are you going to put that money? Right. There's no other outlet for that type, that size and that type of investment, either from a liquidity perspective or from a return perspective. There's always somebody willing to step in and buy those bonds. So that's not a really big concern of mine either. <clears throat> um, but it is a concern, you know, when, when Trump says he's going to come out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership and a whole bunch of other situations like that, it's just, it's not good. Mm. Yeah. What about, I mean, looking at it from a, a business perspective, we sort of move on a little bit from politics in terms of where Asia is right now, and particularly for people outside of Asia who probably don't really sort of see what's happening on a grassroots level on a day-to-day basis in Asia and how things are changing. I mean, everybody's aware of, you know, the tiger economies and the growth rates of some of these markets, right? I mean, they're aware of that. But there's that sort of general push that maybe because these countries aren't bogged down in geopolitical struggles so much they can just focus on building out infrastructure and you know doing the entrepreneurial thing so we're seeing this sort of you know i mean it's it's going to be interesting that just you know looking at we talked about this last week that ease of doing business in asia pacific yes how how it compares i mean the era 
that we assume that the West, quote unquote, was the, the bastion, the, the paragon of free trade. And, you know, we're just sort of seeing a shift. And I just wonder, these are just sort of blips in that shift. These are sort of just echoes that we're experiencing, you know, with this sort of geopolitical shifting as well. Now, really what's going on is that, you know, Asia's really now just establishing its, itself. And, you know, maybe... Maybe in the next generation, there'll be a people that grow up and say, hey, well, maybe we don't need so much external support now. Maybe we can do this ourselves because we've got the confidence and we have the money and so on. So just sort of wondering how that's going to happen over the next generation. It's just kind of interesting. I think we're at a sort of a, not an inflection point, but I think if we were to look back historically and say, well, this is when this changed or this, you know, this was when this sort of paradigm was going out and this one was coming in. Yeah, I mean... We talked about it at the beginning, and I'll say it again. The U.S. Um, had its century, and the transition into the Asian century is already happening. It, ha- it will happen slowly, but it will happen. I mean, anytime you have a place where large groups of people are slowly but surely understanding their own worth and also you know, building out their own infrastructures – focusing on their own domestic economies. I mean, if you think about the way Japan grew, which was by exporting its way out of a war loss, and, you know, China has done a really good job as well about exporting its way out of a lot of financial problems. You know, look at India. Like, you, you live in Asia. You live in Japan. There's not a big export economy there, is there? I mean, when the Tata Group decided they were going to get into the automobile business they got into the domestic automobile business Um, there's a lot of manufacturing that takes place in Thailand but a lot of that economy is domestic as well you don't buy anything from Vietnam you might buy some palm oil and some stuff from Indonesia but it doesn't mean these are really bad economies it just means that they're very domestically oriented and many of you look at the statistics it'll bear that out Mm. so the fact that the United States is going to become sort of inward looking or maybe not a great market for Indonesia into, in, into which Indonesia can export its products, I don't think it's a really big deal. I think it's more important for ASEAN, which is interesting, mm. that there's the barriers to cross-border trade will be easier. And that's already in the works. I mean, that started in 2015 and 2016, and that's not going to stop. We, we talked about this before, but they're going to build train lines that go north and south and throughout Southeast Asia. Those are going to connect to China as well. And whenever the United States has had an isolationist policy or an America first policy, it's backfired massively on them. Right. We can say that's the same in Japan here, right? I mean, that's historically yes. very well documented, right? Yeah, you can you can make an argument all you want about how globalization is bad, but right. it, <clears throat> again, let's get back to this point, right? Globalization did not take away U.S. manufacturing jobs today. Maybe it did back in the 70s and 80s. Um, automation took away most of those jobs and yeah. will continue to take away most of those jobs, not just in the blue-collar space, but in the white-collar space. Um, and I think the way this is going to go forward is that the economies in Southeast Asia in particular are just going to continue working domestically and regionally to continue to grow and get stronger. And in 30 years, the U.S. is going to look back if they keep doing this and wonder, why are we so isolationist? Yeah. 
right? And if they spend, so Jack Ma makes a, an interesting point. You know, they spent fourteen trillion dollars on wars and stuff like that. But remember, it all, that also helped China, right? I mean, a, a lot of the stuff out there sort of helps security in the region in Asia. Like you said, having fifty thousand troops in Japan, twenty-five thousand of which are in Okinawa. And having troop installments in Korea, which keeps North Korea at bay, all these things really keep the peace in the region. One of the largest embassies, so one of the largest installments for politics in, in Southeast Asia is in Thailand, which is, again, is very close to China. And the Chinese know this, right? But also, you know, it's, it's the same thing. It's like dealing with little children, right? Your dad knows that if he gives you just enough money to keep you happy, you're not going to misbehave, and maybe every now and then you need a spanking. <laughs> but if all he's doing is spanking you, you're just going right. to ignore that because you don't have enough money even to go buy a gumball. Right. There's so a you have to, yeah, there is a balance, and I think you have to have some combination of um, like political hard line, meaning I'm going to fight a war with you if you don't stop doing that, hmm. or look, you know... Your daughter is married to the head of this company, and there's a lot of trade going on between these two regions. I think we should just try to keep the peace a little bit more so we don't blow up all of this stuff because in the end, we're all going to suffer for it. You need to have the leverage, I think, more than one lever. Mm-hmm. And you need the economy. You need your currency. You need some part of your war machine to actually be strong enough so that all of these things in combination actually create a situation where – People just want to get along, even if they don't get everything exactly as they like it. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Yeah, I think, I mean, what you said, what I find really interesting is if we were to look back at this time, what you talk about, this real opening up, especially like the ASEAN region. I mean, they, I mean, for years and years, they've been not necessarily fighting wars against each other, but they've hated each other. I mean, the Indonesians hate the Malaysians and all this kind of thing. <laughs> And they all, everybody hated Singapore or were jealous of Singapore. But that whole, that, that attitude is shifting a little bit. Maybe a new generation, a younger generation wants to change that. And you're talking about the building out the infrastructure, you know, the Chinese building these high-speed rail links. You know, that, that's interesting that that's the, the zeitgeist of Asia in 2017. Whereas, you know, go to Europe, what's the zeitgeist there? You know, it's all sort of, going the other way isn't it and exactly then, and then you have you know in america building a wall next to their neighbors right so it's just interesting i find that very interesting it's very telling you know if you were to put your finger on how could you sort of how could you summarize this in in sort of one image it would be that you know you've got this sort of integration happening in a region which traditionally has been very fractured in asia right and nobody ever thought you could have that kind of integration but maybe it's the asean region that will drive that right and then, yeah. in, you know, in the old world, if I can use that term, you, you know, it seems to be going the other way, which is just really ironic. So I find that very interesting. And, and how that plays out in the next 10, 15 years is going to be really interesting because, you know, if it continues like that, then it's just going to polarize in some way or form, right? Right. But isn't it interesting that while the U.S. was growing economically, right, so while the pie was getting bigger and bigger, even though there was conflict, right, whether it was civil rights conflict or women's rights conflict or a whole bunch of conflict, it was from the 50s to the 80s and 90s where all this stuff was going on, and that was while the U.S. was just constantly getting richer, faster, mm. post-war America. Yeah. It, it wasn't perfect, and it was the perfect environment into which people could make an argument like, the pie's getting bigger. Can we have a little bit of that pie for us? Can we be equal? Can we get closer to 
the same thing for same opportunities and the same thing for everybody. And now I feel like most people are really worried that that pie is not growing in America, but that it's slowly but surely um, shrinking. Hmm. And and then you look to Southeast Asia where it's very clear that that pie is growing. And I think whenever people who feel like there's prosperity coming, they're willing to put aside, and maybe this is just the idealist in me, but they're, they're willing to put aside some of their differences and say, you know what, you're getting better off, I'm getting better off. Right. Why, don't we, why don't we fight about this one later? Yeah, 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 exactly. And that's another 25 to 50 year phenomenon, I think, very similar to the way it was in the United States. Um, you know, Europe is a different story because it's been wealthy and going back and forth for centuries, really. But, it, but you make a really good point. You know, again, all through the sort of 80s and 90s, it was like, how can we get this whole European Union working? We know yeah. it's better for everybody. And now it's really like, you know, oh, my God, what's going on in Greece? Or did you see what happened in Spain? Or the British are just, we want to have nothing to do with this anymore. And you're right, it's all moving backwards. And, and I think you're right. I think the, the growth of that sort of togetherness or working together is going to be in Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. And traditionally, it hasn't been. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's a real positive, though, isn't it? At the end of the day, if they can pull I, that off. I mean, they don't necessarily have to have a, an EU-type project, but it just starts small. I suppose the, the European Union started small. It was just, you know, agreement between farmers at the very early stages, right? Yep. Open borders and just open trade. And as you said, well, I guess, you know, if people have that grand vision that we're all working towards this goal here, we can put our differences aside a little bit. You know? Yeah, and I, look, I think we can make the case that there was a lot to learn from um, the European Union and the resulting one currency, right, the euro. I mean, I have my own opinions on this too, right? And I think what will happen is that ASEAN will look at that experience and and try to take the learnings from it and to try to take the best policies that, that, that happen there and leave the worst ones alone. And in, in my mind, and again, you can argue with me about this for sure, but in my mind, having one currency is really, really difficult in a place where there's not a lot of um, labor mobility and there are language problems, mm. right? And I'm sure that there are holes in this argument, but it was never going to be the case that wholesale, and I know plenty of Greek people that live in London, but there are not a lot of Spanish people working in Paris and not a lot of French people working in Germany. And, you know, the same thing goes for all three of those countries in Italy, there's just the labor mobility wasn't there, which means that the local economies are never going to be completely integrated. So as the British are getting rich and interest rates are dropping, they go and they buy real estate in Spain. And this is one of the biggest problems with the unified currency and the unified interest rate policy is that the impact on the local economies was so radically different. You know, in Spain, it lowered the price of real estate, at least at the beginning, and it made money cheap. So wealthy people from the richer countries came in and bought all this real estate. People overbuilt, and then that thing just completely blew up. But in Southeast Asia, I don't think that's going to happen. Maybe because they saw what happened in Europe, maybe not. But I think from a pure business perspective, they're going to say, you keep your currency, you keep your central bank, we'll keep ours. And maybe 25 or 50 years in the future, if it makes sense, we'll combine all of those. But the reality is that we like it the way it is right now. And you historically and culturally have a different view on, I mean, how can you have people that aren't willing to pay an interest rate or take interest deal or have the same interest rate policy as a country that that, that does? It just means that the combination of the Thai Central Bank and the Indonesian Central Bank and Malaysia is never going to happen. Yeah. 
I get the feeling as well that I don't know. I mean, maybe I don't haven't lived here long enough, but I get the feeling that Asia is is more culturally diverse than maybe Europe. But you know, saying that, I mean, Europe's fought wars for centuries and centuries. <laughs> I mean, just thinking back, I mean, just the, everybody hated everybody. If you were even like the French hated the Belgians and the French hated the Germans and so on. Right. But I mean, it just seems that Asia is is more diverse in the sense that it just seems to be. Uh, I guess it, I don't know. I mean, it's a bigger place, obviously, with a lot more people. So I don't know. I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm positive. I'm very long on Asia. I, I sort of. I, I mean, do you sort of listen to people like Jim Rogers much? I wonder. You know, he said a lot about Asia. He sort of up to moved his family from the U.S. to Singapore. And I think right. one, one of the things he said about the whole Asian era was you know he was comparing it to a family moving he said that, you know, if your family were european in the 19th century and you moved to the us within a generation you would have been better off you know you, you would have been wealthier and he's saying now in the 21st century if you were you know from america and you were to move to asia within a generation so 30 years 20 years you'll be wealthier so, I mean, that's his take on things. I mean, he's been pretty smart in seeing the globalization shift. You know, he was up, he was one of the first into the Russia and, you know, he took a few long bets on some emerging economies. So I'm kind of curious that he's sort of said that and gone long on Asia. So that gives me confidence that this is one of the places to be in the next sort of 10, 20 years. Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's any argument about the fact that if you build businesses and you build um, your life in Asia, that you'll be better off than if you would be if you lived in, pick a place in the United States. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'll get in trouble no matter where I be. <laughs> well, we got we got data. We got data, Michael. Here, just just off the cuff, some data here. I'll, I'll go back to doing business again. The number of hours spent doing taxes a year, Singapore versus USA. Singapore, 66 hours a year are wasted. Can I say? done on doing taxes and the usa 175 so it's three times so you know i think whilst you have an opinion i think it's backed up by hard science here well it is i mean look at the look at how taxes get done in hong kong as well right Mm. um your company issues they pay your taxes every year at the end of the year there's like no difference between what you owe and what what you've already paid and the government issues you like your tax return because it's already been done but this is this is again. This gets back to like Obamacare and a whole bunch of other things that happened in the United States over the past fifty years, right? And that is the case that one, there are way more people invested interests in the United States than there are in Singapore, hmm. right? So there's an entire economy around tax preparation, and it means that every time the government, in a good faith effort, if there is a good faith effort, says, you know what, we're going to have a flat tax. It's going to be twenty percent. You know, people can get mad about whether it's progressive or not progressive. We can argue about that, too. But there's a massive lobbying group that starts with H&R Block and goes all the way to PwC and Arthur Anderson mm-hmm. and say, if taxes are that easy to prepare, I don't have a job. Yeah, because because I because people spend 166 hours a year doing it. And that's it makes a tax account that then a tax lawyer really wealthy and the wealthier they get, the more they lobby. And I know that's a very cynical position. But, but it's true. That, but it's true. And yeah, I mean, how big's the tax code in the US? How many thousand pages? Massive, massive. And there's a reason pages. why. It doesn't need to be that hard. And yeah, then people right. argue, well, we want to foster home ownership. But 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 why? Like who decided that right, right. home was 
was necessary. Isn't it like the old days where in the churches they used to read the Bible in Latin, so nobody understood it, right? So, there's this, you know, it's that that sort of power through uh, what's the word that I'm looking for? But you know, ignorance. Yeah, exactly. Power through ignorance. You say you can't argue with the priest because it says this in the Bible here. Well, I can't read Latin. What's well, too bad? I can, so I'm right. right. Right, so I'll get back to you later. Exactly. So go home and see, go home and keep studying, and get back to me when you understand it. Yeah. Yeah, but I do think. Look, I do think the better, the best place in the world to to be doing business right now is in Asia. Well, can right. I just can I just raise one point, Michael? And I want your opinion on this. Is that one one thing that people say? And I've thought this in the past, but but what about democracy? Quote unquote. You know, it's like, well, you know, all these countries, they're not democratic. I mean, you know, the Southeast Asian countries aren't really, I mean, yes, they are democracies, like some of them like Indonesia and so on. But, you know, they're not what we think of as democracies. So, I mean, do you go with that? Do you sort of buy into that, that these countries are somehow less free? Or, I mean, because that would be an issue if you were an entrepreneur coming coming to Asia, you think, oh, well, you know, lack of freedom, that's an issue for me. But what does democracy have to do with individual freedom? Right. Well, that I, I would I would ask that question too. So right, so so you're English by birth, yes? Yeah. And you live in a democrat. Well, it's a democratic country, right? England, UK. Yes. Mm-hmm. But but your democracy is very different than the democracy in the United States. Mm-hmm. Very. You have a prime minister. We have a president. So you you don't elect your prime minister ever. You have no say. Exactly. You elect ministers in like what would be the considered the upper house, and then they pick the prime minister. And the picking of the prime minister in any country that does it, if they do it the same way, in what I guess we would call a democratic society, that man or that woman is chosen for a whole bunch of reasons that have nothing to do with freedom or democracy. Right? In general, that person has worked their way through the party. They've got carried a whole bunch of favors with people. And hopefully they're going to end up doing the right thing. Yeah. So I, I don't understand... Remember, where you know, democracy as we know it today really wasn't the same democracy, I believe, that the Greek philosophers envisioned when they mm. first started talking about giving freedom to people. But think about this too, sorry. And that is, and again, I'm always going to generalize on this, right? We can get into the weeds if, if anybody would really like to. But if you think about why and how democracy or the theory of a democratic society evolved in ancient Greece... You have to think where it was. And a lot of this took place with philosophers. Now, what does a philosopher have that a regular person doesn't have at all? And that is free time. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right? So a philosopher only and so which means that which means that your normal Greek working guy and gal were not standing around in the Agora going, Yeah, I think we probably need more freedom. Yeah. And we and who voted back then? You don't know, right? It was probably only the upper classes that voted. And yeah. also, how many people were there in Greece? I'm going to pick it like in the 5th century before Christ. Like, who knows? Seven? You know what I mean? Like, there were very few people there. Right. And they were all Greek for the most part. Yeah. But even in the pick, you know, pick, pick your democracy, even in the world's largest democracy, which is India, like, most of those people are not the same. Mm. And there's a caste system that's really strong. Like I, I don't believe necessarily that democracy as a system is a the way we believe it is 
You know, in other words, I don't think when we say like this is a democratic society and it's better than some other society, I don't think we we really know that that democracy as we believe it exists actually does exist. First of all, and second of all, I'm not convinced necessarily that it's the best form of government um, in places where populations are really small and easily manageable. Yeah, right. I mean, the reason why the reason why or one of the reasons why, right, that. Um, Lee Kuan Yew was able to do what he did in Singapore was one, he had a very small population. And they were relatively homogeneous. Mm. So who was going to argue? And they got rich really fast. You know, go back and look at pictures of Singapore just 50 years ago or 30 years. Wooden huts. Yeah, wooden huts and people like, you know, working along the river. And now it's like a global financial center and one of the largest deep ports in the world. But you cannot do that in the United States. Right. And you cannot do that in, in Germany. It's just too large and too many different people, and it's just hard, mm-hmm. really hard to do, right? So do people need to be represented? Yeah, I think so, particularly in a country like the U.S. where there are many, many different constituencies. But remember, majority rule, if you think about the way a democracy works, means that if you win 51% of the yeah. available you know, chips, you win, and that's the majority. Then the majority mm-hmm. rules. The minority goes, hey, hey, but you're not being nice to us. The majority really has the right for however long they're in power to say, yep, you're right, we're in charge, and you lose. Exactly. And we've seen so, that. Yeah, we've seen that all over the place. And, and I think the midterm elections will be really interesting because it'll really be a, a bellwether as to how much people really want to put up with this, mm-hmm. like, Silliness in the United States. <laughs> but so here's an interesting story for me. I landed in Tokyo on Tuesday night. Okay, and after taking the Narita Express to wherever, to Shibuya, I got into a taxi. And I was just giving the taxi driver directions. And he was asking me really simple questions, right? Like, are you coming back from Hawaii vacation? Right. Yeah. No, I'm not. No, no, I'm not. I live in Bangkok. I'm coming from Bangkok. Really, where are you from originally? I'm from California. And then it really was like two questions in or three questions in. He said, what do you think of Donald Trump? Mm-hmm. And that was just the first, that's in my first like hour, like out in a taxi out in the real world in Tokyo. And I've had three other people ask me that. Mm-hmm. Business meetings, in taxis, everywhere. <laughs> it's weird. It's really strange for me. Remember, I haven't been physically back in the United States since 2010. So I don't know like what the pulse of that country is anymore. Mm-hmm. It all seems strange to me. Very strange, but we're in the right we're in the right place, Michael. We are, and and in the stuff that we do, and in the spaces where we operate, people talk about it, but it's not stopping anybody from yeah. moving forward. And I think that's the way this is going to work. To be fair, you're sitting in the middle of the most optimistic time in this region's history. Yeah. Um, you know, except for maybe three or 400 years ago. And I don't think there's any comparison. And I think people today just think, you know what? You cannot get in the way of my prosperity no matter what you do. And there might be a little blip. I really think the world at some point self-regulates. And maybe that's just yeah. the optimist in me. But remember, in no, other to- in no other part of my lifetime has a president... Um, come into office and on day one had the largest protest in American history. Yeah. 
just think about the think about the implications of that, right? So a great voter turnout for Trump and for his team, well done and well played. But there are a lot of people out there that aren't happy, and there was nobody protesting on the other side, right? Mm-hmm. That to me is really interesting. Yeah, there's a lot of angry people out there. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd love to know. So I'd like to spend a little bit more time in Japan listening to what people here think. The people in Southeast Asia think what's happening in the United States is insane, and they're really apt to ignore it. Mm-hmm. Right? So I think, again, not to loop all the way back to like the first question about who's going to fill the gap, but from a financial and acquisition standpoint in the tech ecosystem in Southeast Asia, the Chinese have already filled that gap, right, with money. Yeah, yeah. Right, I mean, Alibaba's already come in and bought Lazada. Amazon could have done it, but didn't. Um, and, you know, even in Africa, you saw the U.S. had no great policy in Africa. The Chinese stepped in and started buying resources there, and nobody in Africa seemed to complain about it. Yeah. Um, yeah, and from a financial standpoint, I don't think anybody wants them being like the political leaders and the gatekeepers for that, but I think from a financial standpoint, they're happy to get rich because of China. Hmm. And I'm a big believer that as people get rich, they get more peaceful because they don't want anyone to mess up their nice cars. Right. <laughs> they got more to lose, right? Way more to lose. You, like you don't want a, a hungry populace is the worst one to manage, right? Because they're the ones with the pitchforks and the hose outside the you know the castle gates. Cause... <laughs> <laughs> well, the guys and gals with nothing to lose are the ones who are going right. to fight the hardest, right? Yeah, totally. What's their downside? Yeah, exactly. The guy who's going to get his BMW scratched is certainly not going to go out and protest, right? <laughs> Definitely not. BMW owners are a particular type of person. <laughs> they're very different than like everybody else. Exactly. I think Don't flame us. I think you're definitely right. Yeah, I think it's good though. I mean, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty in the world these days, but I think, you know, anybody looking at the Asian market, you've just got to come here and see what's going on and put aside your you know misconceptions i suppose about what it's really like i mean this whole thing we just talked i mean like as michael said about democracy you know i see people living here who as free as they would be anywhere else in you know the free world so to speak you know you go to a place like singapore or even thailand you know for most people who are educated there isn't a lot of difference really at the end of the day in their lifestyle and in many cases you know i mean i live here in japan which you know when it comes to these human development indexes which rank democracies and so on it always doesn't do as well as its developed world counterparts but the freedom that i experience here is pretty you know extensive you know i don't see signs everywhere telling me to do this do that fines for this and so on so it's a different sort of sense of you know okay it may not be institutionally free you know maybe it's not as free press or media wise as it would be in other countries but you know in day-to-day freedom is there you know, you don't. I think that's something you get in Asia. You don't get hassled, do you? People don't hassle you in sort of day-to-day life no. so much. No, they don't. And that's great for an and entrepreneur, right? Well, it's super great for an entrepreneur. I mean, I would argue actually that there's <laughs> there's more that there's more freedom in in Thailand in the entrepreneurial world today than the prospect of Trump and and what's his name Bannon saying. I'm yeah, really yeah. concerned that two-thirds of the CEOs in Silicon Valley are from Asia and South Asia, which is just a veiled um, comment on why are they from India yeah, right. and China. And China. Um, whereas in Thailand, I deal with entrepreneurs from literally from every single country in the world, and 
for the most part, the Thai government just ignores it because, frankly, they just like the economic growth that it provides. And there's no, there's not even a similar level of kind of discourse about we don't want these people here, we don't right. want those people here. I don't hear any of it, and and I know, and and believe me, most of the people that I know in Thailand have something to protect, and they're not scared. Mm, it's interesting, right? isn't it? Yeah, and again, you talk about democracy, right? But even a country like Japan, which has been a great ally of the United States since after the war, what is it? Since from 1955 until 2009, there was only one power, almost. I mean, one party almost yeah, continuously right, right. in power. The LDP just ruled. Hmm. That's a long time. Yeah. So I don't, I don't think that necessarily matters so much. And during that time, Japan grew a lot. And there are reasons why that had nothing to do with freedom. Exactly. Anyway. It's a great subject. Michael, do we have a surprise today? Have you got a surprise? We don't, we don't, we don't have a, oh, my God, that's a big surprise. Oh, the surprise is there's no surprise. The surprise is there's no surprise today. There's just too much. Look, we can talk about DT and the implications about what's going on there forever. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think the I think the biggest surprise here is that, in my mind, like I would be I would be surprised actually if this administration lasted for the entire first four years. You know, I've been thinking that. I think how the hell are these guys going to get through? Because it just I mean, you know, I don't whether their policies aside, it's just their approach of administering the policies. I think is like wow, you know, you talked about stability and you talked about you know the policies in Asia, for example. Whether or not you're you know, a hawk or a dove, you've got to be a diplomat, right? At the end of the day, and sure, and that's the problem here, right? Yes, I mean, I think these guys are bullies, right? And they're trying to bully their way through a whole bunch of stuff, and I don't think that that ever, actually ever ends up working. Hmm. I really don't think so. And we talked about it a little bit before, right? But like. What's his name? The the Secretary of State. He had no opposition when he wanted to do something from from his perch at Exxon, whether it was dealing with the Russians or selling oil to the Iranians, regardless of what political embargoes or, or governmental embargoes were in place. He didn't have to operate within those within those realms. And, and and Donald Trump had the same thing. Because if imagine if the president had to deal with in his private life with daily protests about the silliness of his business activity. If you go back, he's been bankrupt three times, right? Hmm. Could you imagine if every time he did that, his shareholders just like protested outside his house? <laughs> with a guy who's so, who has the intestinal fortitude, right, of a small doorknob, um, he could have been suicidal. Hmm. And yet he's, you think that he's going to be able to sit in, in the world, right? Remember, here's the thing. We talked about it earlier. When he was in high school, it was very likely that some kid was like bullying him. He'd go, I'm going to get my daddy to do it. And he'd just go call his daddy to do it. Because he couldn't handle it on his own. I know these kids. And I'll tell you a story to end this that you'll love. Go on. But in the real world, you can't do that. You can act like a bully, right? Like, I'm going to have a bigger present. Because Steve Bannon's behind him telling him, you got to do this, right? Hmm. I'm going to act like a bully by saying, I'm going to have a a bigger navy in Asia. I'm going to control the Straits of China. I'm going to control the Straits of Taiwan. I'm just going to send my navy there. But the first time, like, a thousand people die because China bombs that boat and you've got to run home because the country itself does not want American soldiers to die. Who are you going to call? Your daddy's dead and he cannot bail you out. Hmm. you were supposed to be the guy that's bailing out the rest of the world. And yet, 
I mean, I hate to say it. Can I use the word? Go on. I don't know if I want this to be like radio, but he's a pussy at heart, right? I mean, he really is. I hate that word, but he's a coward. Mm. Just like most bullies are. I've seen it in my own I've seen it in my own life and we can tell that story later but I've seen it in my own life all you really need to do is punch a bully in the face once right and they run and they run I've seen it yeah anyway you don't like him I <laughs> it's not that I don't like I mean I can like or dislike anybody really but but there's a reason why certain sort of systems of behavior have been put in place yeah and the reason why is maybe because after years and years of trying, that has become an effective way to actually get the right thing done. And I think that in, when you look at the history of the, the planet, we notice that anytime you become an isolationist, you, isolationist, you create problems. Mm-hmm. And just look at the U.S. itself. You know, the great quote, whether it's true or not, before the election was Donald Trump saying, you know, my family did not come here all the way from Germany just to have this country overrun by immigrants. Yeah. <laughs> why, don't we, why don't we end on that? Yeah, that's a surprise. That's the big surprise. It is. Well, it's been okay. really interesting. I enjoyed talking about that. And we'll keep, uh, well, we'll keep an eye on developments. Absolutely. I don't think we're going to be too heavily affected here. Everything just, as we said, just things get on. You know, people get on, right? You know, Asia's got so much opportunity. We're just going to push on and get on regardless of what's going on over there. I think so. Leave them to it. Yep. Yeah. Michael, it's good speaking to you. Always a pleasure, Graham. What are we doing next week? Any thoughts, anything that you'd like to talk about in the coming weeks that's really exciting at the moment? Yeah, I mean, so I want to, I want to, I want to talk about something that's very close and near and dear to my heart. There's a startup community that's bubbling up in the south southern part of Thailand. It's been completely ignored up until now, right. right? There's, there's, there are two real big parts of Thailand. One is kind of Bangkok and above, mm-hmm. and the other part is kind of below Bangkok. And mm-hmm. I've recently started to get involved in what's going on in the south of Thailand, and I've met some very interesting people who are just literally saying, "Screw it, we're going to build our own thing down here. We see what's going on in the world." We're not a group of backwater rednecks like everybody thinks we are. Let's build that, and I want to talk more about that um, next week. That sounds awesome. What part of Thailand are we talking about, like Hua Huin or like all the islands and so stuff? Even like? further down south, like as you get closer and closer to Malaysia, right? Right. Wow. There's, you know, in the same way that between India and Pakistan, there's been kind of a, um, a border fight going on. Hmm. In Thailand as well, there's a very interesting thing that happens on the border of Thailand and Malaysia. And as you get closer and closer down there, the whole tenor of the country changes. And those people don't want to get left out of Mm. the prosperity they see about to explode in the northern part of the country. And they have a a perception problem. I don't want to spend too much time talking about it today. But there's a perception problem about what actually goes on in the south. And it's the same thing, you know, everywhere in the world. What the media portrays as is going down there and what actually happens on a day-to-day basis are two completely different things. Right. Well, that sounds awesome. Really looking forward to finding out a bit more about that. Yeah, it's very interesting to me. So let's talk about that next week. Yeah, keep us updated. All right, Michael, catch you next week. You're listening Thank to you. AsiaTechPodcast.com. The usual Twitter, Michael. Twitter, Michael Waits, and hashtag AsiaTechPodcast for any feedback to us. Greatly appreciated. Thanks for listening. <laughs>